The compared to what question can really teach us a lot and it can help us value things because if we understand that most things are valued by comparison to something else, we can really make better decisions um, because it will tell us if something is cheap or it's expensive. And if we're just comparing it to the dollar, we don't always know if it's cheap or expensive. And you know this very well because you understand inflation, right? So the dollar is a moving target, right? So that could never answer the question, is it cheap or expensive? This is Better Wealth with Caleb Williams. Jason Hartman, welcome to the Better Wealth Podcast. Hey, thanks, Caleb. It's great to be here. I, I was uh, just saying as you as you logged in, number one, it, it's an honor to have you on here. You are so articulate. I think um, you can scare the living daylights out of my audience because the issues are real and I want to dive into that. But the cool thing about you is, in, is you have solutions. You have solutions. Yeah. And I, I just criticize a lot of people out there that are saying, doomsday, 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 yeah. but have nothing to pivot. So this, this is going to be a really powerful conversation. I know you're going to share your screen. So those of you that are watching on YouTube are going to benefit greatly from this. But like, I, first of all, you're known as a real estate guy. You, you have a ton going on. I would love to hear your, your story in a nutshell, like your why, and then let's dive in and, and I'm ready to take notes. I got, I got my pen and paper out. Okay, sure, sure. So, uh, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles, California. I grew up poor. I didn't like being poor very much. By about ninth grade, I realized all the best looking girls were hanging out with the rich kids. And, uh, you know, I, I wanted to have cool stuff, cool clothes, go, go, go on cool trips and stuff. And never got to do that really much when I was a kid. And so um, I, uh, I started in real estate pretty early my first year of college. I was 19 when I got my real estate license. And I just wanted to learn more about investing. And uh, I thought the path to do that, not knowing anything at all, was to just start selling real estate as a broker. And uh, so I did that. And uh, six months into my career, I bought my first rental property from one of my own clients. Uh, I, I had sold him the property and then he decided it wasn't his favorite property and asked me to take the listing for him. And I said, hey, I don't wanna list it for you uh, as, an as your agent. I want to I want to buy it from you, and so I bought my first rental property then, and um, you know I kind of had a bad experience. I had to evict my very first tenant ever, uh, but I actually did make money on the deal, even though the the rent collection part didn't go well. Uh, I did end up selling the property, made money, and I became uh, addicted at that point and uh, purchased a lot more properties over my career. And I, I just think income property is really the most historically proven asset class in the world. Um, and, uh, you know, everything and everybody is so under attack nowadays, but there are defenses that we can uh, use. And, uh, you know, one of them is your strategy. Another one is my strategy. And I'm sure there, of course, there are others out there, but, uh, you know, yeah. When it, when it comes to inflation, I just watched a video that you did that was super well articulated around inflation, the problems that uh, it, we have, but then I loved how you positioned it because you're like, it's a problem. So let's, let's actually use it in our favor because right. if you don't, if you don't know the rules of the game. It will crush you. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, like you said at the beginning, there are, uh, there's no shortage of doom and gloomers out there and they're not all wrong, but they, they are kind of largely wrong in one way, the doom and gloomers. 
what they what they tend to not realize or not say at least number one we have to understand the old saying in the newspaper business right if it bleeds it leads right you know sensationalism and bad news gets attention so a lot of the doom and gloomers the clickbait you know it, it's just incessant right it's all over the place uh and they're not all wrong uh but what they kind of don't realize is that uh all of these problems in the economy and all of this you know the the economy is built on a house of cards and uh when people talk about that they they like to criticize the u.s but every other economy is is the same pretty much i mean that every currency on earth is a fiat currency, meaning it's not backed by gold or any precious metal. It's just backed by government decree. Um, and the U.S. out of any country is best positioned. Uh, so, uh, you know, the other thing they kind of don't realize is that, or they don't say, is that it's truly amazing how long they can kick the can down the road, yeah, yeah. right? Nothing, I mean, it, it seems like if you're just looking at the math, oh my God, look at all this money printing, the world's going to end, you know, the Fed is buying all these assets. But so what? Who says they can't do that for a hundred more years, yeah. right? Yeah. Like you're nobody at, ever has that, you know? Really, yeah. Yeah, you're looking at every other country and you look at Japan and all the, these other countries and it's like, hey, we're actually best positioned. Is that kind of your philosophy? It's like, Listen. Absolutely. Yeah. We are we are the prettiest girl at the ugly dance. Okay. Yeah, I like so, that. <laughs> you know, it's uh the, the US is in a far superior position to like any other country, better than China, uh better than anything. Uh, okay, you know, we, we have the reserve currency of the world. People say that's gonna change. I don't think it is gonna change anytime soon. Someday it will, I'm sure, but it may be long after we're gone. Uh so yeah, you know. At the end of the day, the, the U.S. has the most powerful brand in the world. Yeah. Uh, you know, no matter what anybody says, uh, they still want to come to America. Uh, I, I saw the horrific stories of, you know, our, our just completely irresponsible withdrawal from Afghanistan and, and the Afghans clinging to our, our transport airplanes taking off and falling off of them after the plane takes off to their death. I mean, it's, it's just awful. Uh, so, who, you know, how can you say America is so bad, right? That's just a complete falsehood, you know? So, sorry, Peter Schiff, you're, you're just wrong over and over again. I mean, <laughs> you know? I, and by the way, I agree with you. I've had the opportunity to, to travel and it's like being an American, it's kind of like you're the cool kid. Uh, everyone yeah. wants to take pictures with you and it's like surreal. I remember being in India one time and someone's dream was to be in Los Angeles. Like yeah. they grow up wanting to just travel to the United States of America. And it's like, man, we have, we, we take all this stuff for granted. Uh, before we delve into real estate, cause I'm really, I, I know you can articulate this well and you have a presentation that I'm excited to, to dive into. What do you think the big issues are? Like, why are we broke? Why are we miserable? Why are we not living intentional um, as, as relates? We're the richest country in the world and yet it's sometimes you you walk outside and you go like, what are we doing? Well, I mean, that's of course a totally loaded question. And when you say we, are you talking about sort of the the population that's sort of the over entitled population, or yes. uh, you know, the the slackers who aren't doing anything with their life? Well, uh, I mean, you know, it's a whole complex variety of problems, of course. But uh, you know, I would say you could sum a lot of it up 
in uh, luxury is the lull to apathy, right? You know, when, when people have their basic needs met and uh, when they're comfortable, they just don't try very hard. Uh, that's just the way the human animal is. It's the psychology of the human being. And some people have, uh, you know, we were talking a little bit about business before. You're obviously a very ambitious young guy. And, um, and you know, I've been very ambitious all my life. And some people are able to just be continually motivated, even though they're comfortable, right? I mean, you know, there are billionaires who work hard every day. And, uh, and, and you know, you know, you could argue that maybe that's a sickness or maybe it's great and character, it's good character. I, I don't know. Uh, but, uh, but certainly it, the general population has been hypnotized with, uh, you know, what they used to call bread and circuses where, uh, and, and that's what they did in ancient Rome to appease the population, right? They gave them the, the basic food and the entertainment so that they would become complacent and, uh, I mean, Aldous Huxley's book, Brave New World, and, you know, many movie versions of it uh, outlines that pretty well. So. When it comes to people that have a good head on their shoulders, what are, what are the, maybe the biggest mistakes people are making? Maybe like myself who want to become wealthy. Our audience is filled with people that want to live intentional lives. They're saving money. They're investing it. Uh, and they're listening to this for a reason because they want to learn a better way. What's, what's, kind of the big mistakes that people are making that have money and are willing to work, but maybe are working or climbing up the wrong tree, as Stephen Covey would say. Yeah, um, and I'm a big fan of Stephen, the late Stephen Covey. He, he was awesome. I got to meet him in Russia once, actually. <laughs> we were on a cruise ship in Russia, so uh, very, very uh, great author. Uh, you know, he wrote a lot of good stuff. Um, I mean, there are many things, right? But I would say um, one thing is, uh, relying on other people to do the work for you, trusting other people, outsourcing your investments, just blindly handing over your money uh, to some guy wearing a nice suit who really hasn't achieved what you want to achieve. Um, uh, you know, uh, they're just losing control of one's money. Uh, you you want to, as much as possible, and I know we can't, we all can't do this all the time, but try to be a direct investor whenever possible, where when, when you put your money into something, you control that thing versus just relinquishing control to somebody else. Uh, so, so that's one thing. The other thing I would say is uh, people need to protect their assets in advance. Obviously, we live in a very litigious world. Uh, a lot of stuff can happen. And um, you know, one thing that I've definitely learned is the more uh, well-known you become, and not to say that I'm that big a deal, I, I mean, in my little world, you know, I'm, I'm well-known, right? But outside of it, you know, I'm not Brad Pitt, okay? <laughs> but, but, you know, like, you become a target. Uh, you know, people take pot shots at you, and um, you really got to set things up to protect yourself, protect your uh, your wealth, your speech, use entities, uh, and, and have that, you know, do that kind of stuff. You got to do that stuff in advance. Okay. It, it's, it's stuff that cannot be done after the fact. <laughs> okay. It has to be done in advance. That, that's, that's something I even noticed that you have a private family or foundation. I'm not, I'm not sure yeah. if private family foundation. And it's something that this, this year was something that I took time and money to set that up for for myself and my family. 
uh, mainly because I want to start thinking that way, but I want to yeah. get it established before it's like, oh, I should have had this two years ago kind of deal. Right, right. And, and you know, the foundation isn't really like an asset protection thing or an asset defense thing. Um, that I set up when I sold my last company 16 years ago. Um, I, you know, I just wanted to do something philanthropic. Of course, you put money into the foundation, you can deduct it on your taxes, but it's not like that. It's not like any great strategy. I mean, there are better things you can do than that. Um, but, you know, uh, someday if I ever do retire, I do want to get more involved in philanthropy. And so I thought, you know, like, like you set that up now and get the wheels in motion. So, so let, let's talk about real estate. And sure. I mean, I've, I hear this a lot. The market's hot. It's the high, housing prices might be too high, which I know you yeah. have probably some uh, powerful opinions about that. Um, sure. So when one in doing my research and just some of the things that you teach, um, a lot of the people in, in my industry will talk about how taxes have to go up. And I think you have an interesting perspective on that or how the market's going to crash and, and just something has to change. And so as we talk about real estate, why is this asset class like the number one asset class as it relates to um, investing in, as it relates to building wealth and making sure that we can have sustainable wealth. And I want to set the stage because while we're recording this, there's a lot of uncertainty and I'm hearing from multiple people, I just feel like it can't continue to go up and we're just going to wait until the market crashes to buy or get involved. And I know that you have some um, interesting things to say about that. Right. Uh, yes, uh, definitely. And, um, you know, the, the first thing I'd say about that is the reason income property is so uh, desired and, and everybody talks about it is because it is it has very special characteristics it's a multi-dimensional asset class whereas many asset classes are one-dimensional maybe two-dimensional so just a couple examples there if you buy uh precious metals or cryptocurrencies or non-dividend paying stocks those are one-dimensional the whole strategy is buy low sell high that's it that's the whole game right um and then they might be two-dimensional if it's a dividend paying stock for example buy low sell high get dividends in between right but income property is multi-dimensional in fact it has a lot of dimensions to it but just to mention a couple of them you know it's buy low sell high get cash flow or dividends if you will um huge tax benefits. It's the most tax favored asset class in America. Um, the ability uh, to take advantage of an imperfect market. So one of the things that happens in economics is uh, in, in any marketplace that is very perfect, and what I'll tell you what I mean by that in a moment, uh, the opportunity dissipates. So for example, take the stock market, right? Um, if, if you own, uh, say, shares of Microsoft, and they're trading at a hundred bucks. I have no idea what Microsoft's trading for it now, but say it's a hundred bucks, right? That's the share price. And the reason you know that share price is because you look at the, the ticker, you look at the exchange and that's the price. You can't call your stockbroker and say, hey, look, I've got this Microsoft stock. I know it's trading at a hundred dollars. I really want to sell it at $120 per share. And, um, and look, I was hoping you could do a little creative marketing and maybe, uh, you know, put a little coat of paint on it and uh, improve the stock. <laughs> you, know, yeah. you can't do that. Um, 
real estate is a very imperfect market. So the more knowledgeable person, the person who moves more quickly is rewarded in real estate, where is, you know, I guess you could say the more knowledgeable person or the faster mover in stocks, sure, but there are so many knowledgeable people in that world that it's a it's a very perfect market, it's a very sophisticated market, and if anybody who's a stock market investor thinks they're going to beat the high frequency traders, they literally are insane. Um, there's no possible way. Okay. And watch Michael Lewis's interview on 60 minutes a few years ago, where he talked about that. Um, yeah. And, and read the book flash boys, you know, it's, it's just not going to happen. So, you know, in real estate, it's a, it's largely a mom and pop business. It's becoming more institutionalized for sure, but the institutional players in that world, you know, BlackRock, Blackstone, Invitation Homes, you know, you, you've heard all the names. They're a tiny percentage of the market. Now, granted, they are growing and getting bigger, but as we speak today, it's like a, a bucket of water in the ocean. It's just nothing so far, okay? So very imperfect market leads to more opportunity. Right, right. It's uh, the stock market's very efficient, and yeah. and you, you could say real estate is, there's a lot of opportunity to grow, and so it rewards the person that's willing to take action and has specialized knowledge. Um, yeah. you, you say there's, we, we like to call the real estate market and combine it all into one. I know, yeah. It, it's, it's kind of hilarious if you think about that because when people say real estate, it's like, what are we talking about? I, I believe you said there's like 400 plus sections or, or categories that yeah. we, could, we could put in real estate. What, what kind of real estate should we be, we be looking into? Yeah, and for those who are looking at this on video, I know not everybody is, uh, I'll, I'll just share my screen here. And um, there are uh, about 400 MSAs or Metropolitan Statistical Areas, but even those are too large to call a real estate market. There are, about, there are over 3,100 counties in the country, uh, and there are way more cities than that. I don't even know how many cities there are. And even within a city, that's bigger than a market because a market is really a neighborhood. Okay. So uh, it's very uh, difficult to call, to talk about the real estate market or the housing market in a country as large and diverse as the United States. It's just, you just can't do it. Um, but you can, for efficiency's sake, divide things into three types of markets. There are linear markets, and these are sort of the slow and steady markets, and we think they're the most profitable markets. If anyone were to look at my website, jasonhartman.com, and they click on the properties page, they would see properties in linear markets, okay? Because that, those are the markets we like best, they have the best yield, the best cash flow, and over time, they tend to actually appreciate the best. But they don't get much attention, Caleb. The markets that get all the attention are number two, the cyclical markets. And these are the markets that are, if you're looking at a chart or a graph, it's like a roller coaster, ups and downs. Uh, and these are trophy markets. So in the US, there are places like where I live, South Florida, okay? Miami up to Palm Beach, where I am. Uh, and uh, yeah, the West Coast of the United States or the expensive Northeastern markets, New York, Washington, DC, Boston, et cetera, right? Uh, so those are the two major types. And then in between the two are hybrid markets. And examples of hybrid markets would be places like Denver, Austin, Atlanta, um, 
you know, it's kind of debatable on some of those because it fluctuates a bit. Phoenix, uh, maybe, um, but uh, but those are those are the examples around the world. The the cyclical markets would be places like London, Paris, Dubai, Hong Kong. Okay, the rest of the world is pretty much a linear market. Most real estate markets are linear. The vast majority of planet Earth is linear. Okay, so those are the three major types, and we like linear markets the best. So. So you would stay away from buying real estate in like New York or California or like yeah. hot markets, but you're pretty much pretty much pick a place on the map of the United States. You can make it profitable. Uh, well, don't just pick a place on the map. <laughs> that would throw, be a dart, little, throw a no, dart at the no, map. No, no darts, no darts. Um, uh, but, uh, but yeah, you know, I would say by and large linear markets are the best markets in which to invest. Uh, but still, there are a lot of choices in linear markets, right? So, yeah. Cool. Let's, let's talk about the Hartman Comparison Index. I think this is something that um, it can just provide a lot of value yeah. to my audience. And so uh, why don't you explain what that is? And Sure, absolutely. So, um, you know, when, when people try to evaluate the value of anything in the world, yep. they typically evaluate the, the value of it in whatever currency they use. So we use the dollar. Uh, some people use the Euro, the peso, the yen, the Brazilian real, whatever, right? Um, whatever currency they use is how they try to think of the value of something. But that is a huge mistake, yep. okay? And the reason it's a huge mistake is because the value of their own currency is constantly fluctuating. There, there's a whole group of people, some of them extremely wealthy, who just trade currencies all day. That's all they do. They don't even buy stock or bonds or mutual funds or real estate. They just trade currencies. They trade the value of the euro versus the dollar or the yen, right? And, um, and so the currency is fluctuating. So people need to really figure out um, what measuring stick they're using, not rely on only one measuring stick, use several measuring sticks to establish maybe a, a mean or an average, uh, which will give them a much more accurate, assess accurate assessment of value. So my listeners, Caleb, um, uh, constantly uh, like, they seem to like when I, I say this saying, it's really a question. And the question is, compared to what? Compared to what? And so uh, they've even, my listeners have even dubbed this the Jason Hartman question. Now, obviously I did not invent the question. <laughs> I'd love to take credit for it if I did, but the compared to what question can really teach us a lot and it can help us value things. Because if we understand that most things are valued by comparison to something else, we can really make better decisions um, because it will tell us if something is cheap or it's expensive. And if we're just comparing it to the dollar, we don't always know if it's cheap or expensive. And you know this very well because you understand inflation, right? So the dollar is a moving target, right? So that could never answer the question, is it cheap or expensive? So right now, people look at the price of uh, real estate and mm -hmm. they look at the median house price, about 350,000 what? Dollars. Mm -hmm. But that's only dollars, right? It's only one thing. How much will those dollars buy us? That's changing. Yeah. 
So how about if we just go right to the source? And my index, the Hartman Comparison Index, or the HCI, basically compares the price of real estate to over 40 other things. And it tells us whether or not we are in a bubble, which is the question people are constantly asking. Are we in a bubble? Many people think we are in a bubble. And so I don't know. Let's explore it together, okay? By I love this, by animals. the way. Thank you. Thank you for get doing this because this gets me fired up because, again, yeah. it's so true. Everyone's comparing to the dollar, and the dollar is getting less and less valuable, and right. yet we think that's the best measuring stick. Yeah, they're, they're making a huge mistake by only using the dollar as their measuring stick. It's just a giant, it's a huge error in judgment. So, so what I want to do is help people use other things uh, that are typically things that are sought after worldwide and not measured in any currency. Okay, they're measured in every currency because everybody uses these things and everybody wants them. Okay, so let's first, um, you know, to answer the question, when will the bubble pop, um, understand, uh, and I'm just going to pass a couple things here. Uh, there's a couple other indexes I compare it to, but let's go right into it. So gold, right? Caleb, I mean, gold has been considered money for 5,000 years. The first gold coins were fashioned about 2,600 years ago, and I'm not a gold bug. I don't even think gold is a very good investment, okay? I think it's okay to own some, I do, but I wouldn't put a ton of money into it. Um, but it's a measuring stick, right? Mm -hmm. And it's been considered a store of value for five millennia. So if we look at gold and we go to 1970, where the median house price was just about $23,000 and gold was $35 an ounce, it would cost 646 ounces of gold to buy the median house. And if we go to say 1990, let's just take another one on the chart here. Uh, the median house price was 122, if you're rounding, 122,000. Gold was 415 an ounce. So it was 293 ounces of gold to buy a house in 1990. That's now, fascinating. Yeah. Okay, so, so in 20 years from 1970 to 1990, priced in gold, houses actually got cheaper. They got about half, better than half price. Yet everybody in 1990, I guarantee you was saying, oh my God, houses used to be so cheap 20 years ago. Why are they so expensive now? They're, they're $122,000 when they used to only be 23,000. Right. <laughs> you I, see the error here, right? 100%, and, and someone once explained housing prices has more to do with interest rates than anything else. If you look at yeah. 1970, what was the average mortgage? Yeah, interest about rate. seven, about 7.3% to answer yeah, your question. It would yeah. be interesting to look at the payments because yeah. I would, I bet the payments haven't fluctuated nearly as much as the price. Yeah. And so interest rates have manipulated that quite, quite bigly. You are absolutely right. And um, we do that in part two of the index. And we can jump to that and do it today if you want. Okay. I'm here to um, learn, but this is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So let's just finish up on the gold thing. So, so as of June of this year, uh, the median house price was almost $350,000. And the gold price was just under $1,800. Hmm. So it would be 194 ounces of gold to buy the median price house, right? So in 51 years, the house is less than one third of what it used to cost. And everybody thinks it's more expensive. Wow. It's cheaper. And you know what? If you don't believe me, I want 
your, your listeners and viewers, Caleb, they should do what I'm constantly recommending on my podcast and my YouTube channel. They must watch old movies and old TV shows and listen to old music and read old books. Be and I don't mean even that old. Just watch a movie from the early 1970s. There are many classic movies, hit movies from the early 1970s. And you can look around and see how people lived. You get a decent representation of what a rich person was, depending on the movie you're watching, what a middle class person, what a poor person, what their life was like, right? You know, it's a movie, it's not perfect, but it's close enough. If you watch shows like The Brady Bunch, you know, or whatever uh, on Nick at Night, you know, you, you get a sense of what life was like then, right? And, um, and, and you see that uh, people in a lot of ways are much richer today and and here you can see their standard of living in terms of the house they can buy is much cheaper priced in gold if they save their money in gold so priced in gold it's cheap is is right? that because of innovation there's not much innovation in real estate it's a primitive industry so uh you know it's funny i was interviewing a guest on my uh, creating wealth podcast uh maybe a year ago and he he had a really good line we were, we were grousing about how there's just almost no innovation in building, right? It's, it's a really primitive business. It's pretty much been done mostly the same way it's been done for a hundred years now. And, um, and he said, yeah, Jason, you know, the biggest innovation in construction is the nail gun, right? It's not exactly high tech. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so yeah, no, it's, it's, it's not because of that. Uh, it's just because truly in many ways, the standard of living has gotten a lot better. But not if you saved your money in dollars. Yeah. Because going back to this chart, and the problem is we're not going to have enough time to do much. So I don't want to harp on gold yeah. too long. But oh, that's Bitcoin. Sorry. Um, so in gold, you know, the point, the question is, right, 2010, to buy a house priced in gold, it was 208 ounces. Today, it's 194. So it's not much cheaper, but it's a little cheaper than it was in 2010. So the question is, if you were saving up to buy a house for the last 10, 11 years, if you saved it in dollars, you would be paying, uh, well, what is this? $150,000 more about. Yep. But if you saved it in gold, you would be paying uh, mm. about 15 ounces less. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what do you want to save your money in? Right. Dollars or gold, right? That's the question. Where do you want to store the money? Now, you'd be much better storing it in a bunch of income properties, yep. but you know, this is a good example because it's really quantifiable. Yep. Okay, so uh, let's move on. Let's skip Bitcoin. Houses are way cheaper in Bitcoin than they were when Bitcoin started. That's easy. Oil's a good one though, Caleb. Yep. You want to do oil? Yes, let's do it. Okay, so 1970, median house price 23,000. Oil is three bucks a barrel. A barrel is about, what, 55 gallons. So for a whole barrel of oil, it's only $3. Today, a barrel of oil is about 75 bucks. So in 1970, 51 years ago, it would cost you, it would cost you many oil trucks to buy a house. You would, if you wanted to trade the seller of the house, you would have to pull up uh, in front of that house with 6,746 barrels of oil. That's a lot of oil. Today, you could pull up in front of that house with like uh, a, a third less, about almost a third less 4622 barrels of oil to buy a house today so priced in oil houses are cheaper okay now in orange juice houses are more expensive 
if you want to price it in orange juice. Okay. So 1970 orange juice, it was 50,000, 51,000 pounds of orange juice to buy a house. Mm. Today it's 280,000 pounds. Mm. So priced in orange juice, housing's gotten a lot more expensive. Okay. Um, rice, it's gotten cheaper. Okay. Mm. Uh, in the S and P, the standard and poor's 500 index, which is largely uh, considered the biggest gauge of the economy and what it's doing, right? 72% of consumer spendings in the S&P. So priced in the S&P index is a good one. 1970, the house was about 23,000, shares of the S&P were 93 bucks. 243 shares of the S&P to buy the median price house. Today, median price house, 350 grand almost. The S&P is at 4,352 per share, only 80 shares of the S&P to buy a house today. Fascinating. So, so priced in the S&P 500 index, are houses cheap or expensive? Cheaper. Cheaper, a lot cheaper, right? And I can give you these examples over and over. I can price them in, in people's median income. Mm -hmm. I can price, you know, how many years of income does it take to buy a house? And here it's actually a little higher. Okay. Uh, but today you usually have both people working. If they're a couple in 1970, not so much. It was just the man working usually. Uh, so, you know, there's just a lot of moving targets here. Right. But overall, the index shows that housing is still fairly cheap, believe it or not. Okay. Fascinating. That, that's yeah. fascinating. Most people would think different. Okay. So we do it in the cost in the Forbes cost of living well index. There's just a whole bunch of stuff in the index, but we don't have time to go through it all. So questions. And I want to get to part two of the index because you brought that up earlier. Yeah. I want to dive right back, right into, to your presentation. I just want to say thank you because again, you're articulating things that are just not, people are not talking about yeah. and it's, it's eye opening, And I, this is the first time I'm seeing some of this stuff. So thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. You know, I just want to get people to think in a new way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, they, they just, it's very myopic to price things in only dollars. You know, that, that just is not enough information, right? So when you, when you go to the second phase of the index, it's not about the price of the house. It's about the payment on the house. So the vast majority of home buyers do not buy on the price. They don't care what the price is. The house could be $3 million. If the payment is 1300 a month, sign me up. I'll yeah. take it. Okay. Like it doesn't matter what the price is. That's just a number. What matters is how much is it per month? Okay. So if we price that in dollars and we adjust those dollars, that monthly payment for inflation, we're going to learn some things. But also, if we compare that monthly payment to other things, which is what the index does, okay? Let's take a look at some of this. So um, let's look at the inflation-adjusted payment first, okay? So in 1970, the median uh, priced home would create a mortgage payment of 142 bucks a month. Pretty cheap, right? Yep. Today, that median uh, price house is a payment of $1,170 a month. But wait, there's more, as they say, at two o'clock in the morning on that infomercial when you can't sleep, okay? Today, when you adjust for the official inflation numbers, which are highly manipulated and understated, of course, you know that, okay? What the are those payment, numbers? Are we talking 3%? Uh, well, it varies, but okay. it's about 
uh, for 30 years from 1970 to about 2000, it was about 5.1% on average. Um, and I don't know what it is for the full 51 years offhand. Okay. Yeah. But, but today that payment is only $169 adjusted for inflation. And understand this, the inflation index, the CPI, the consumer price index, the most widely used measure of inflation is massively understated. So what this means is that if you calculated the real rate of inflation, this $169 would be dramatically lower than that. And I don't know what it would be. It depends what calculation you use. I like an index called the Chapwood index, which I think is a really good index because all they do, it's really simple. It's not manipulated. They take 500 items that people buy a lot and they average the cost of them in a bunch of different cities. And right now, the Chapwood Index would tell you that the inflation rate in pretty much any major city is about 13%, I think. Okay, so that would make this a payment maybe $70. The house is actually cheaper just on the payment alone. Okay, okay. So what if we priced the payment in ounces of gold or barrels of oil or pounds of orange juice, mm -hmm. right? Remember, the interest rate is less than half of what it was 51 years ago on a mortgage, mm -hmm. right? So it's gotten a lot cheaper. If you if you wanted to, if you had a, a, a stock of gold in, you know, under your bed in your house, right? Um, and you took out a little bit of that gold to pay your mortgage every month. You went down, you converted the gold to dollars, and then you paid the mortgage. Mm -hmm. In 1970, you would have to convert 4.1 ounces of gold. In 1980, you would only have to convert 0.9 ounces of gold. 10 years later, it's one fourth the amount, less than that even. But in 1990, got a little more expensive, 2.1 ounces of gold. I'll just fast forward to today, it's only 0.7 ounces of gold. So the monthly mortgage payment priced in gold is the cheapest it's ever been in 51 years right now. Pretty amazing. Yet yeah. everybody thinks houses are too expensive, right? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> How about oil? Uh, 1970, to pay your mortgage, you would have to take 42 barrels of oil, convert them to dollars, and then pay the mortgage. Yeah. Today, you only have to take 16 barrels of oil, convert them to dollars, and pay the mortgage, right? Orange juice, price in orange juice, it is more expensive. <laughs> In 1970, 319 pounds of orange juice, today 944. So orange juice, not a good place to store your money. Okay? Don't, don't be buying those oranges. <laughs> yeah, those, those orange futures, right, on the commodities market. That would be a bad deal. How about shares of the S&P? Remember, this is the payment, not the house. You're not paying cash for the house, you're financing it. Yeah. 1.5 shares of the S&P to pay your mortgage in 1970, 5.3 in 1980, in 2010, 0.9, but today only 0.3. Priced in the S&P, paying your monthly mortgage is the cheapest it's been in 51 years. Yeah. Right? How about hours worked? How many hours does the average person need to work to pay their mortgage? In 1970, they had to work 41 hours. Mm. Today, they have to work 46, a little more, but not too much, because compared to what? Compared to 1990, they had to work 83 hours to pay the mortgage payment. So 
It's not bad. It's a little more expensive, but in 51 years, you only had to work five more hours to pay the mortgage. And the house today is quite a bit nicer than it was 51 years ago. I would say so. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, there's a bunch of ways you can slice this. You can compare it to tuition. Uh, you can compare it to uh, a whole host of things. That's what the Hartman comparison index does. And uh, it would take a day to go through it all. Okay. Jason, thank you. Thank you yeah. for putting the time in and sharing that. Um, I, I just, my mind's going like a million miles an hour. I think of even like the mortgage, the 30 year mortgage is like, isn't, is like the greatest wealth building tool for us consumers. Oh it, yeah. Is so there a right. better tool out there? Not much. You know, most people, that's really good that you bring that up, uh, because, uh, most people consider the house to be the asset and the mortgage to be the liability. But, um, really, if you look at it as though you're you're effectively shorting the US dollar when yep. you get a mortgage because you get to pay that debt back in cheaper dollars. And I, I have a trademark technique for this. I call it inflation induced debt destruction, which I talked about on a video with your friend. Um, and um, with that, you pay the mortgage back in cheaper dollars and that is effectively a short on the dollar. Yep. And I, I think, everybody with a brain agrees that shorting the dollar is a pretty good investment right now okay unless your name is uh dave ramsey uh but unless it's dave ramsey harry dent or well peter schiff would be shorting the dollar but he thinks everything's so doom and gloom so <laughs> can i put a summary i'm gonna try to land the plane here i'm gonna try to do okay. this justice sure real estate because it appreciates, can create cash flow, has the best tax advantages, you can use leverage, you can short the dollar while getting the asset. It's yep. those reasons and much more, but those reasons why real estate as an asset class is a no brainer. And you should be looking to that before you look to gold and Bitcoin and putting your money in the market. Is, am, I, am I highlighting this well? Yeah, I think so, because it's multidimensional and it's got all these creative things and it's an imperfect market and all the rest of the stuff we discussed. Yes, um, but we, we call it income property, but really a big part of that asset is the mortgage itself. Mm -hmm. It's just that you have to get the property to get that great mortgage. So it's part of the deal. And that was kind of my part too, is, is then you look at inflation and, and if I just summarize a lot of your thoughts, it's like, hey, inflation's this bad thing. We can all agree that inflation's not yeah. ideal, but instead of crying about it, like let's let's short the dollar, let's get right. on the way and let's use it as as our advantage because there's entities that will say, We'll we'll give you we'll give you money and allow you to pay yeah. us back twenty nine years from now with yeah. the same dollars that are worth way less. Right. Absolutely. You are absolutely right. Nailed it. Yeah. So what's what's called action? I know it's like I want to learn more. My yeah. audience wants to learn more. What can we do? You know, one thing I can uh, offer to your audience is I've got a little mini book uh, at uh, available for free. It's totally free, no strings attached. It's just a, a PDF you get right away. Uh, and it's uh, available at pandemicinvesting.com. Um, people are kind of amazed that I was able to get that domain name, <laughs> uh, yeah. pandemicinvesting.com. And it, it adapts a lot of the strategies I've been teaching for many years to the crazy world in which we live now. And that's available totally free at pandemicinvesting.com. That'll get you on our mailing list. So when we email updates on the Hartman Comparison Index, you'll get them. And uh, I would just recommend getting that at pandemicinvesting.com. My main website is my name, jasonhartman.com. And then of course, 
my podcast, The Creating Wealth Show, is available everywhere on all the podcast platforms. And I'm also on YouTube. Uh, just look up Jason Hartman and you'll find uh, all of my YouTube videos. Did were you were you able to get the pan like pandemicinvesting.com? Like was it 12 bucks or did yeah. you pay a lot of money? That's <laughs> yeah. remarkable. Wait, wait, I to didn't go. even I didn't even <laughs> buy it from anybody. I just bought it right from uh, right from the domain registrar. Yeah. I love it, man. Um the way I end all all the shows is with a, something called the legacy question. And the legacy question goes like this. This was your last day on earth, and you could not give any of your books, podcasts, any you know, anything that you teach to the people that you love the most, but you had one last conversation, what would that conversation look like? And what would you focus on? Oh, gosh, that's a tough one. And you know, um, it is really tough for a lot of us to uh, imagine our own demise, right? Unless we have a terminal disease or something, you know, which hopefully nobody uh, listening or watching does. Um, and uh, that is a really tough question. I I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't answer that today. You know, I, I have not given that thought and you know, that day will come for all of us. And it's a, it's a good question, even as a rhetorical question, um, just to, to think about. Um, but, um, you know, maybe since we're talking finance and business, I'll, I'll sort of put it in that category, but, uh, just, uh, you know, maybe understand that, uh, work should not be considered necessarily work. It's a third of our lives or more, and it should be meaningful. It should be a mission, and it should be something that we would do for free. Uh, and if we find that thing, we're probably going to do so well at it that we won't be doing it for money anyway. Uh, so, you know, since we're talking finance, I, I could at least share that. Okay. I think it's, I think it's very inspiring because you don't have to do this. You have, no. um, let's just say you don't have to work for money. I think that, listen, there are some days when I wonder why I haven't retired. It's not all, but, it's but not all roses. It, it's very clear that you're passionate about getting this out. And I asked you, um, before we started the podcast, if you were 25, yeah. like again, knowing what you know now, what would you do? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, my answer to that one was I would, I would have gone in heavier because I would have had back then more time to earn it back if I made a mistake. And I certainly made lots of mistakes along the way. But I think the one of the bigger mistakes is being overly conservative. Now, just to understand, uh, don't make don't interpret that wrong. When I say being overly conservative, that doesn't mean I wouldn't be careful on deals that I would do. But I would do more deals. Okay, I would buy more properties uh, versus, you know, like keeping a lot of money in the bank and then buying some properties and saying, oh, we got enough properties, right? The properties have just been such a gem and such a good asset class. And there's no reason to think that will change over the next 10 or 20 years. I mean, look, even if property prices go down, which they may, okay, I mean, they will at some point, there, there will certainly be a correction nobody just knows exactly when it will be right um but you know if you're investing for yield and cash flow that's the way you keep them for the long term who cares if they go down if you're getting a yield that produces 20 percent uh every year so what even if the value goes to half i don't care i'm just gonna keep it and get my 20 percent every year and and the, the, a lot of people out there that's saying there's a bubble and they're looking at the fed you're saying yes, compared to what? Hey, see it? Yeah. <laughs> the, yeah, compared absolutely. to what? Look at yeah. everybody else is even in a worse position. So we're just, we as a country are going to keep printing money, whether you like it or not. Yeah. There's no other levers at this point that they can pull. Right. 
No, you're right. They've, they, they, you know, every time they go, you know, the elites, the elite hypocrites go to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, or, you know, where the Fed meets every year, or Davos, Switzerland, the World Economic Forum, or, you know, the G7 countries meet in Germany or something, right? You, you, you see this on the news, right? They, they overcomplicate it. At the end of the day, they're just freaking printing money. That's all they're actually doing, okay? Yes, they can have meetings about it. They can fly their private jets, you know, have, you know, the best vodka and the best wine. But at the end of the day, they're just increasing the money supply. That's it, that's it. right? That's, that's really all it is. Um, so here, I, I do wanna make a prediction I've yeah. made before, um, but I, I think you'll like this. Um, look, regardless of what the real estate market does, one thing I think we know for sure is that ultimately interest rates have to go up. Mortgage rates have to get higher. I don't know exactly when, but they're going to go up. Okay. So all of the people that have this locked in three decade long short on the dollar, when these mortgages, when they ask compared to what, and mortgages are back to six, seven, eight, 10%, who knows, right? I mean, look in the seventies, they were up at like 18, 20%, okay? But maybe they're back at six or eight or, or 10%, okay? And that's not super high historically. Uh, they're gonna think, wow, I have this mortgage locked in on these properties I own at 3% and I've got 25 years left on that. They are not gonna give those mortgages up. They are going to want to do whatever they can to keep those ultra cheap mortgages, which means they're not going to sell the properties. So they would be more likely to, if they live in the property, to improve the property, to put an addition on the property, to remodel the kitchen or something like that. And if it's a rental property, they're just going to want to keep them because they can't repeat that cheap mortgage. That cheap mortgage becomes a commodity that's irreplaceable. It's like a diamond. It's rare. It's an asset. It's that, an asset. Yeah. And so there, that is going to create an additional housing shortage mm. when those people won't relinquish those houses because of those ultra cheap mortgages. And I don't think many people are thinking of that. In fact, I don't think anybody's thinking of that. I, I haven't heard it anywhere else. It's just my own theory. So how, uh, I, how I'm not sure great. there's going to be a big crash or a bunch of supply anytime soon. I I'm mean, with you. And, and also yeah. scarce. I mean, there's scarcity. There's not like you can it's it's yeah. it's this beautiful thing just question how can our interest rates go up when you look at our debt is that is that something that is problematic because well i mean think about what happens on the reverse side of it right the u.s government to finance its drunken sailor spending okay yeah. has to basically sell bonds treasuries okay and to get people to buy them they have to offer a high yield on them and the way to offer a high yield is you have to raise interest rates, right? So it's a trap. I mean, we are in a trap, right? You know, they want the economy to keep going. So they keep printing money like drunken sailors or loosening the money supply through low interest rate policies. Uh, but <laughs> at the same time, they, they need to get people or people, countries, mostly countries to buy our sovereign debt. And uh, they got to raise interest rates or they're not going to buy them. You know, so it's a, it's it's a real catch twenty two. It's a mess. Maybe, maybe next time you come on the show, you can explain to me negative interest rates because I, yeah. I apparently do not get that. Don't Jason, worry, we, we you don't have to explain them. We already have them 
because yeah. in real terms, interest rates are negative today. If you borrow money at 3% and you know half of that, if your tax bracket's 50% state and federal, um, so you're only paying 1.5%. If inflation is another 3%, you're paying negative 1.5. There you go. Today, we okay. already have negative interest rates. Go get your free money. Yeah. Jason, Absolutely. thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Guys, go to pandemicinvesting.com. Um, I can't wait to dive into this. Jason, I appreciate your time, your expertise, and your passion. Hey, my pleasure, Caleb. Happy investing. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Better Wealth Podcast. It would mean the world to me if you could hit subscribe, leave a review, and share this with the people that you know and love.